The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode 43. Why do they always blame America first? In the 1970s, when I was in elementary and junior high school, I was puzzled by a counterintuitive and irrational attitude that I encountered everywhere. It was not until UN Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick's speech at the Republican National Convention in 1984 that I had a name for it. The Blame America First Mentality. By that time, however, my own thoughts on the phenomenon had expanded well beyond national politics. Ambassador Kirkpatrick pointed to the Democrats and said, They always blame America first. While this was marginally true of the Democratic Party at that time, it was clear to me that the attitude was far deeper than political rivalry explained. Something much bigger than the game between Democrats and Republicans was at stake. The divide did not cut neatly down partisan lines, nor across the other categories that mirrored politics. For instance, the bulwark of democratic politics at that time was their union base. Yet I knew a great many union families, and you could not find a group more intrinsically hostile to a Blame America First doctrine than rank-and-file union members. By the 70s, the black vote was overwhelmingly Democrat. Yet as a group, the idea of blaming America first was repugnant to them almost universally. Those who advocated for blame America first were never the average American, but invariably highly educated, sociocultural elites. Those who lived in America at the ground level, so to speak, without being Pollyannas, never identified with that view. As I looked more deeply, too, the issue seemed not to be one of blame America first, but rather one of blame us first, with the us referring to all traditional Western and especially Christian people and ideas. It seemed, that is, a sort of self-loathing. Having grown up in a mainline Christian denomination, the United Church of Christ, I witnessed a radical disjunction between seminary and pew along these same lines. I observed the proliferation of liberation theology in South America and worldwide, all with a self-loathing attitude that pervaded our intelligentsia wherever I brushed against it. Along with the objective attitude, however, also came a very specific subjective flavor, moral and intellectual contempt. The judging self never strictly identified with the self it judged. I was puzzled. Did they understand better than I did? I was beginning to have intellectual interests of my own, and I wanted to admire those who knew better than I did. Were they seeing things more clearly? More objectively? What was I missing? How could so many intelligent people, many clearly more intelligent and more well-informed than me, be wrong? Their claims, too, were seductive, as almost all started in a simple moral judgment that something was selfish, unkind, or unfair. 
And it was always the status quo, the self, the we, that caused the ethical breach. The invariable judgment? We are unethical. The sole cause of the problem. We must change. This invariable conclusion, however, nagged at me. I could not make the facts of the world commensurate with these judgments, try as I might. I was raised to self-evaluate. Correct yourself, my parents taught me. Work harder, smarter, be more compassionate and ethical. Strive to be more honest, forthright, and clear-headed, and most of your problems will go away. Most, but not all. Part of taking responsibility, my parents said, was acknowledging that even when you do everything right, there are no guaranteed results. Reality can thwart your best intentions. Sometimes it's not you that is the problem. And it is not you that needs to change. But whatever the results, you must do what you believe to be right. The rest, as T.S. Eliot said, is not our business. While honest self-assessment is our duty, foolish self-flagellation is not. There was always another component to the critiques of the blame-us-first elites. As Western intellectuals, they stood outside the self they were judging, seeking not so much the improvement of the West as of the promotion of the opposition. Hence, their judgments never felt like the sort of honest self-assessment my parents advocated. The self was not so much to be improved as summarily condemned in favor of the superior interests of the other party. The position being adopted was that of judge. They didn't need to investigate. They already knew better. I loved Western culture generally, and America specifically, and I thought them good. Not perfect, but good. Try as I might to see their side, it seemed to me that my favorable conclusion was based on honest self-assessment and accorded with the facts of history better than the elite's summary judgment. How was it possible that we were the cause of every problem in the world? And why was change, the explicit destruction of our institutions and traditions, always and uncritically for the better? Who was right? I would not resolve my uncertainty until I studied Hegel in graduate school. The key that unlocked this problem for me? Hegel's dialectic of self and other. I am a self, the dialectic tells us, only in relation to other selves. I first conceive of myself as a self-contained individual. But as soon as I conceive myself as such, I give rise to the notion of another self, who is not me, who stands in opposition to me. And thus, my self, the thesis, gives rise to the other self, the antithesis. Self and other can remain in isolation and opposition. Or, 
they can unite in the higher resolution, the synthesis of the we, which contains both the self and the other. In attaining this resolution, though, the self must give up its rigid individuality, recognizing that self exists only as relation to its other, with whom it is, thus, inextricably tied. The dialectical resolution of self and other in the we both cancels and preserves the self. This double move, the resolution of the opposition, is the Hegelian Aufhebung, or sublation, the overcoming of the contradiction, the synthesis. For Hegel, this progressive dialectic of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis is spirit. The thesis is the definite position that gives rise to its opposition, or its contradiction, in the antithesis, and in doing so allows for the resolution that unites the contradictory terms in the higher moment of synthesis. The thesis must be overcome to advance to the synthesis. The antithesis, born at the same moment as the thesis, is what drives the process to completion. For Hegel, all moments of spirit possess a democratic dignity and value, as each moment plays its necessary role in the advancement of spirit. The deterministic nature of spirit's progress means that the synthesis, when it comes, will be the necessary moment upon which the philosopher will report. Hegel describes spirit's progress. He does not drive it. Marx, the first of the prescriptive Hegelians, took issue with Hegel on this point in his Theses on Feuerbach. Quote, Philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. For the prescriptive Hegelians, merely describing the world is inadequate, arrogating to themselves not just the perspective of the absolute, which Hegel did, but also absolute judicial authority and legislative power. Spirit's moments cease to be value-neutral. The philosopher now judges them, takes sides with a view to change what is. The thesis, the moment of stasis, retards the synthesis, and it is the antithesis that drives it dynamically forward. By driving the process, they can change the world. It is in this way that in the self-other dyad, it is self that is denigrated. The self represents stasis, the status quo, conservatism, and tradition, and is not merely structurally opposed to the antithesis, as in Hegel, but morally bad, regressive, while the other, the antithesis, is morally good as the driver of progress. The thesis, then, should be opposed, as it stands in the way of progress, which is always good. As we have emphasized before, it is an axiom of faith that the dialectic ascends.
all change is for the better. Thus arises a peculiar set of valuations due to the nature of the dialectic. The thesis, the self, is contemptuous simply by virtue of its position, and all that is other is exalted and pure, good as the driver of synthesis. By judicial fiat, the philosopher condemns the self, legislating the superiority of the other. There is no need for empirical analysis of the real in order to assess the situation objectively. We already know what the world is like by theoretical legislation. The role of the intellectual, the enlightened ones, is to display how theory manifests in reality, how the empirical situation reflects the truth of theory, just as critical race theory, which is Hegel applied to race, tells us. Racism is the underlying reality. It must be assumed, not discovered. The only difficulty is to show how it manifests in each empirical situation. The procedure, then, is the explicit inversion of the scientific method. In science, theory is what is doubtful and subject to revision by empirical test. For the dialectician, starting with Hegel, it is the world that must conform to theory. Add to this the Marxian and post-Marxian analysis of power relations as intrinsically exploitative, that it is precisely because the Western world is dominant, successful, and in power that it is evil and must be overthrown. And we can understand why the reflexive and intellectually uncritical response of our elite Hegelian culture is to blame America first. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.